0: Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt and this is Cyber. Today we're going to talk about an old technology that suddenly feels very new, the bomb. That's right, today is all about nuclear weapons. Thanks to Moscow's war in Ukraine and Putin's implicit and explicit threats to use them against anyone who should uh, threaten Russian territory, everyone is afraid of nuclear weapons again. Able Archer, passe. Cuban Missile Crisis, well that's old news. These days... It's all about hypersonics, tactical nukes, and even cruise missiles powered with a nuclear engine. At least, that's the claim. With us today to answer all your burning nuclear questions is the arms control wonk himself, Jeffrey Lewis. Lewis is a professor at the Middlebury Institute, a member of the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, and the host of the Arms Control Wonk podcast. Sir, thank you so much for coming on to cyber and talking to us about nuclear weapons. Hey man, it's great to talk to you. All right. So you're an expert in this. You know the history. You're immersed in the subject. On a scale of one to Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, where's your nuclear anxiety at right now?
1: Oh, my God. I have my own scale. And it goes from one shot to steady the nerves to drink the whole bottle. And I'm still at one shot to steady the nerves. I mean, it's not quite have some chamomile tea and don't worry about it. But it's at the moment... Weirdly, I actually think deterrence is working just the way it's supposed to.
0: I'm glad you used that word. Uh, So Macron, uh, president of France, had some interesting things to say today. Someone asked him about this uh, on Public Access Channel in France. Um, He said, quote, our doctrine rests on the fundamental interests of the nation. These are defined clearly and wouldn't be directly affected at all if, for example, there was a ballistic nuclear attack in Ukraine or in the region. Russia possesses nuclear weapons, as does France, something people often forget. Uh, our doctrine on this subject is unambiguous. Deterrence works. The less we talk about it, the less we blow uh, we blow up the threat, the more we trust we gain. Too many people talk about it. What is deterrence? When we talk about deterrence, what does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah, there is so much to impact from, from that statement. I mean, it's like... He's like a really—he's um, like a really talented grad student who almost gets it. So <laughs> this is kind of wild to hear him talk like that. The way I think about deterrence is this: when we are faced with a crisis, um, we want to impose caution on the other side, and the other side wants to do that to us. And deterrence, that T-E-R in deterrence is from terror, and it means to frighten, so that the idea is nuclear deterrence is about simplifying the calculations of your adversary uh, in a really brutal way, right? So that there is no question in their mind that they are taking a risk by taking a certain action. Now, there may be a question about exactly where the line is or whether you would really go through with it or not. But it, I, I think of it as using terror to brutally simplify the calculations uh, of even a really terrible decision maker.
0: Does deterrence work? You know, most
1: of the time, right? I mean, it's funny. There's this kind of dichotomy that you see between people who either believe in deterrence or don't believe in deterrence. And I'm, I'm one of these people who thinks that deterrence works most of the time right? The threat of nuclear annihilation is, in fact, frightening. And so I think it does have a powerful effect. It's why Joe Biden talks about not being involved in direct military conflict in Ukraine, right? He says, come on, guys, we're talking about World War Three. That's Russia's nuclear weapons simplifying his calculations and inducing him to be cautious. I think that's also why Russia hasn't attacked all those supplies piling up in poland that end up on the ukrainian side of the border uh killing prodigious numbers of russians because he's deterred so i think it generally works but people are not perfect decision makers make dumb decisions sometimes and so you know we're basically making this bargain right we're saying if we make the risk of war so destructive Almost no one will be idiot enough to start it. But, you know, I mean, if you make something idiot proof, the world will eventually build a better idiot. So I I think that we're, the bargain that we're making is a time limited one. You know, it worked in the Cold War. It'll probably work for 100 years. It might work for a couple hundred years. But eventually it's going to fail really catastrophically.
0: Yeah, it works until it doesn't. And the consequences of it not working are um, horrifying. Right.
1: And that's a feature, not a bug, right? Because if there was no chance that things would go wrong, and if everybody was completely rational, you know, and, and you're dealing with Spock-on-Spock violence, then it wouldn't deter anyone, because you would just sort of magically dance around all of, all of the escalation pathways. There has to be inherently the risk that everything goes catastrophically in order to make the other side hesitate and be unsure about whether they can really push it. Uh, Tom Schelling often liked to talk about how people would say the word brink, like brinksmanship, like you come up to the brink. And a brink is something that's like very clear, like a cliff. And he was like, you know, it's more like a slope. And you edge your way out onto it without ever quite knowing If you're going to put a foot wrong or get to the part where suddenly it's too steep and you're done for.
0: All right, we've got a question from the audience. Uh, If I try to pronounce that name, I'm going to screw it up. I'm just going to say thank you and say Custer. Uh, But the question is, how do tactical nuclear weapons, if there is such a thing, we can even answer that question, fit into the deterrence model?
1: Yeah, so I don't like that term, tactical nuclear weapons, because there isn't a good technical definition. the way that the U S and Russia do it is we have tactical and strategic weapons. And those are defined by what's covered in treaties. And we, we argue about which weapons are strategic and therefore get limited by treaties and which ones should be not counted. But that doesn't exactly correspond to what one would use or what the weapons are like. So they're not necessarily smaller in terms of their size. Like the B 61 comes in, Strategic and tactical variants, and those bombs are all the same size physically, uh, can be dropped off the same aircraft, uh, not really all that much smaller in terms of yield. Like, I think there's like small differences, but even most tactical nuclear weapons that we're talking about today are much bigger than the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so really that tactical strategic distinction comes down to like, what are you using it for? Are you using it for a strategic effect, which is you want to break the will of your enemy to resist? Or are you using it for a battlefield effect, like you're trying to destroy a bunch of tanks? Uh, and you use the same bomb for both those things. So what I, what I think is worth saying, though, is that there are a bunch of systems that Russia has that are designed for battlefield effect. Um, and, you know, we see Russia using conventional variants of them. So the Iskander, which they use all the time in a conventional role um you know does come with a nuclear warhead and so there is this sort of ambiguity about their forces and i think that there are situations where russia might be tempted to use a nuclear weapon for tactical purposes but then i think there are also situations where putin would be tempted to do it for strategic purposes and you know what he ultimately chooses to use you know maybe there's a we haven't seen like huge tank battles but whatever maybe the ukrainians mass some tanks he decides he wants to hit them he might use something we call a tactical nuclear weapon, but he could use a a, a start-accountable, you know, warhead off a bomber if he wanted. It's, you know,
0: all the same to me, man. Can we – yeah, I mean, it's still – you're still using a nuke, right? Regardless of whatever your justification for it was, it's still a nuke. And in the deterrence model, you're still using one, right? Like, we would still read <laughs> it the same.
1: So – The term that my community has started to use a lot is we used to use strategic and tactical, but then we started using strategic and non-strategic, which is just to say all the stuff that's not in treaties. Uh, And, you know, Linton Brooks, who was the head of the National Nuclear Security Administration in the Bush administration, that used to drive him nuts because he was like, there is no use of a nuclear weapon that is not in an important way strategic. They are all strategic. Um, And I think like, like most things Linton says, he he was, he's right. So yeah, I mean, you really, I think have to dig into why would Putin use one of these weapons? And then I think it becomes inescapable that he doesn't necessarily know how we're going to respond, which means that, that it always has a strategic quality to it.
0: So what do you make of Macron's statement that we all talk about this too much, and that we should be more silent about it. What do you can you interpret that? We, we all talk about it too much, and not, and the we here is
1: officials. Right. right Officials talk about it far too much, and no good ever comes of that. My favorite example of this is Bill Perry, who was Secretary of Defense during the Clinton administration, much smarter than I am, much smarter than pretty much anybody who's ever been Secretary of Defense, probably the best Secretary of Defense ever. Once said something that got misinterpreted as a nuclear threat against Libya, and he had to walk it back. And so, my test is like, are you smarter than Bill Perry? Just pause, you're not. And this was hard for Bill Perry to do right. In fact, I think it's impossible for anyone to do right, no matter how smart you are. And so, if like Bill Perry can't always execute it, like, you have no hope. So, just shut up. Uh, and I think you saw that with Macron's statement, which is. I'm more sympathetic to it than most people. I understand what he was trying to achieve. And I think having made a bunch of mistakes, he kind of cleaned it up OK at the end. But he was actually misstating his own policy and and and, and doing it in a way that was, you know, going to make him few friends. So, like, why why play this game at all? You know like you can object to you can quibble with questions all day long and never give an answer and that's usually a skill that politicians are expected to have all
0: right I've got uh, a couple of good questions coming in from chat some of them I actually had on my list uh, Dissent gradient uh, points to a lot of the coverage that's been about this in the news lately It's been a lot of really scary headlines a lot of really scary op eds most of them pointing to Putin um in that people are saying that the odds of nuclear war have increased. Uh, Dissent Gradient says, I presume that this relates to the perception that the odds of, of, of both have increased, but the tenor of the coverage makes me think that I should liquidate my 401k and live like there's no tomorrow. How much have the odds actually increased? I understand that there's a lot of branching scenarios, but if you sum up the odds for all of those that ends in Armageddon, what percentage does that come to? Is that even knowable?
1: So I think it's not knowable, but it's a useful exercise. I'm actually very sympathetic to all the math nerds out there who want to put a number on it. Not because I believe in the number you get, but because I think the discipline of trying to break things down is really valuable. Like I don't know if you know the Drake Equation involving the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful example uh, where you've got a problem like what are the chances there's something else out there that's unknowable. But the idea of the Drake equation is that you break that unknowable question into different parts and you try to address each part separately. And it's not that you ever get a number that you love, but it's that you start to systematically and in a disciplined way, work through the things that matter. And I think you end that exercise smarter than you started, even if you don't have a number. So uh, what do I think about the number? Well, the first thing I would say is the media coverage is not helpful, and the reason it's not helpful is Putin exploits it. A lot of what Putin says is not a nuclear threat, but he knows it will be interpreted that way. So he basically gets a free nuclear threat, like when he announced a special mode of combat duty for Russia's forces, which is not putting the forces on alert. It's increasing the number of people in um, in command centers, he did it on TV. And he used this, like, weird arcane phrase, and not surprisingly, everyone interpreted it as a nuclear threat. And so the threat got made, and then he could be like, what, me? Well, oh, I never said anything like that. You know, you guys are hysterical. You're the ones talking about nuclear weapons. You know, so... I think he gets a lot of mileage from our reactions and we shouldn't give him that for free. We should, if he wants to make a nuclear threat, then he needs to put on his big boy pants and make the threat himself rather than doing doing it in this deniable way. Um, so to my mind, the risk increased when a war started, right? The general risk of escalation is baked into the fact that we are, supplying lethal assistance to the Ukrainians with the stated and correct goal of denying them a victory in Ukraine so that elevated the risk. And I would say it elevated it by like an order of magnitude, you know, so I'm somebody who thinks that the kind of, you know, normal risk of a war on a, on a day-to-day basis is sort of one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Uh, and my guess is this is the kind of thing that would have moved it from by an order of magnitude from like one in a thousand to one in a hundred. We're still probably going to get through this, right? It's going to be fine. I give you a good price on your 401k. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I'm, 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 I'm still positive. But when you start to do that exercise of saying, like, what would cause you to be alarmed, even if you don't get good numbers, at least you start to be disciplined about, like, what would make one alarmed. So one thing that would make me alarmed is that Putin really issued a nuclear threat.
0: Right? What would that look now, like? Like, what would that an that actual would be- explicit threat look like from him?
1: That would, him, that would involve him being clear that he was about to use a nuclear weapon or was seriously contemplating it. Not alluding to the fact that he has them, not talking about how he can deter threat. I mean, you know, he would have to have a specific ask with a, an implied consequence.
0: So Funny, like the and, so like his speech that he gives uh, after they annex Donetsk and Luhansk and right. Kherson, where he says something to the effect of like, no, remember we have these. Yeah, I don't think that counts. You know that doesn't count. Okay,
1: nope. Uh, and in fact, you saw an example when then the Ukrainians turned around and started taking that territory from him. You know and they aren't at any pains to explain why, you know, they're, they're still in a position of being able to say, well, you're the ones who inferred that. You know, all we said is we have this policy and we said it's part of our country now and you're the ones who imagine that. Uh, so one thing is Putin says it, but let me say there's a second piece to this because Putin may say it in not a great way or an ambiguous way. Um, Peskov, his, you know, weaselly little spokes guy, Whenever Peskov gets asked about this stuff, he usually walks it back. So he got asked about uh, whether the attack on Russia of blowing up that bridge counted and would result in a nuclear response. And Peskov was just like, no. So the day when Peskov is like, maybe. Right. So now you've got the threat. You've asked about the threat and you've gotten the clarification. Then, Then I think that's clear. The way I look at it is this. For really to be a threat, there has to be an ask, right? We have to be able to clearly say, we now understand if we don't do X, that we're going to, like, face a serious risk of a nuclear use. Everything else, I think, is just vibes, right? And, like, he loves the vibes. He loves appealing to the vibes. He loves putting the vibes out there. Um, But, I mean, it's not real until he is, like... Specific that you know, if Ukrainian, I don't even want to play this game for him. But I mean, right. you know, there have been nuclear threats made in the past that are are quite specific. Um, and I just I don't love the like the cheap shots. You know, Dulles uh, of airport fame, uh, you know, did this with the Chinese. He tried to pass a nuclear threat through uh, Nehru in India to the Chinese. Um, and he bragged about it all the time after. And now we have the, you know, declassified minute. And all he says is, uh, you know, if the war doesn't stop, so we, now we have an, a, a specific ask, right? Like you have to negotiate. He said, the United States will make a greater rather than a lesser exertion to win the war and not hold anything back. And Nehru was, after getting asked about this years later when Dulles was bragging, was like, I didn't even notice. Like, <laughs> Too subtle for me. And by the way, if I had, I wouldn't have passed it along. So I, I think, you know, these things need to be fairly explicit before I'm gonna take them I'm gonna take them seriously.
0: All right, cyber listeners, we're gonna pause there for a break. If you are watching the live stream, we'll be back instantaneously. If you're listening to the podcast afterwards, here's a few words from our sponsor. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We are talking to Jeffrey Lewis about nuclear weapons. I've got some more questions from the audience here that I think are pretty good. Um, so you know, we're talking about assigning a number to this risk. Uh, this is from Esrik. I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, how do you feel about us doing this? Do you think the probability of risk is helpful in shaping policy, or does it assign false certainty to something that is fundamentally uncertain?
1: Yeah, so the answer is it's helpful, but it's dangerous for that reason. I mean, it sucks because you can't stop dumb people from doing dumb things with good information. And so putting a number on something absolutely runs that risk of leading people, whether they're in the media or experts or officials, you know, sometimes they just take the number without really paying attention to the data that underlies it. And it's, From my perspective, what's valuable is thinking clearly about what the escalation pathways are and thinking clearly about what you would expect to see along those escalation pathways. So I I still think it's useful. Like one big takeaway for me is if you game this out at all, Putin doesn't know what's going to happen if he uses a nuclear weapon. So I actually think we would probably see preparations for a Russian use, not because we would necessarily see the weapon that the Russians were going to use in a limited case, but because he'd have to get the whole force ready, right? He'd have to be prepared across the board for a U.S. response, and so we might see that kind of stuff.
0: Right, it'd be similar so I to
1: through this stuff. That's all.
0: It'd be similar to the run-up to the war, right? Like we the. There was a lot of U.S. intelligence that was looking at like the logistical stuff that was going on on the other side of the border and said, hey, this sure looks like someone preparing to go to war. Similar things happen with nukes, right? Like you're going to anticipate a response. A whole bunch of other stuff is going to happen before you hit that button, right?
1: That's what I think. I mean, you know, it's funny. We we talk about surprise attack all the time uh, because that's obviously the most frightening nuclear scenario. But man, you know, the literature of surprise attacks, like it's hard to know how much of it is just hindsight, but I, they don't always really seem all that surprising to me. You know, like, I mean, we, 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 have. I guess we've had this debate endlessly about September 11th, right? Is it really a surprise or not? And I, you know, I don't know, man, bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. It's like, I think at some point, like. You know, like, there's usually plenty of general warning. Uh, It's just that people don't necessarily want to read the signs because it's inconvenient.
0: All right, let's pivot here and talk about uh, another thing that I think is in the headlines and is making people uh, anxious about nuclear weapons. You just published a piece in the New York Times today about North Korea. Um, Give us your take here. What did your your piece say? I thought it was very interesting.
1: Yeah, so... I think that there is no chance that Kim Jong Un is ever going to give up his nuclear weapons. And so to me a policy that has that as a goal is not going to succeed unless you get rid of Kim Jong Un. Right? Kim Jong Un and the weapons are coextensive. That you can't have one without the other. It's if you want to get rid of the weapons, you are talking about getting rid of Kim Jong Un. So I suggested in the New York Times piece that It makes sense to admit that that's the case and to recalibrate our policy to go after other interests we have. So I am not someone who actually is a huge advocate of disarmament. I mean, disarmament would be great because as I said earlier, like deterrence won't work forever. But like the problem is not the bomb. It's that we have the risk of use. And so I tend to focus much more on reducing the risk of nuclear war so that we can like, live long enough to work on the disarmament problem, which is sort of like the ultimate solution. But like, that's a not-now you not problem for me. And so in the case of North Korea, I just don't want to have a nuclear war. And so I want, to, I want to try to get them to behave better with their nuclear weapons and get them to behave in a much less dangerous and threatening way on the peninsula. And if the price of that is Kim Jong-un feels secure that we're not going to overthrow him with his deterrent, I'm happy with that. So the examples that I use, which, you know, is maybe a little bit inflammatory, but like, you know, whatever, uh, are, this is exactly what the US did with Israel. You know, the Nixon administration knew the Israelis were building nuclear weapons. And Nixon, and the whole US government was against it. And Nixon was like, you know what, I don't care. I don't care, but like I don't need to hear it. So you don't test them, you don't show them off in parades, you don't talk about how you have them. What happens in a basement somewhere, not my problem. Uh, and I think that's what Kim Jong-un wants, right? He wants to get sanctions relief, keep his bombs, and what he's willing to offer is, we'll never see those weapons again. He won't test them, he won't parade them, he won't talk about them, and if he pretends they don't exist we'll pretend they don't exist, and we'll all move on.
0: But don't you need to... Doesn't deterrence work because you know your enemy has them and they might be willing to use them?
1: Well, I think that raises some really interesting questions. I tend to be a minimalist in the sense that I think possessing them gives you 99% of the deterrence you're ever going to get. Now, that's not the way most people in the U.S. think, right? In the U.S., we think no, 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 we have to have all these tailored, credible options, and I need to have the right yield, and so I have to have a variety of yields, and I have to have different types, and, you know, we in the U.S. think that deterrence depends really heavily on the details, right, which is, like, the balance. It's a thing you calculate with math, and I tend to be much more like, nah, you either got them or you don't, and if you have them, you're that's going to, you know, do the job of deterrence. So, in the case of Israel, everybody knows they have them right What the Israelis are doing is they're getting all the benefit of deterrence from possession, but they're not making it politically difficult for their neighbors and right? if they don't talk about them, then you know the generals in Egypt don't have to talk about them um and that takes pressure off the situation and I think the North Koreans have calculated the same thing. everybody knows they have them, but if they stop. Talking about them, and we lift sanctions, then it's just going to disappear from the discourse. And I mean, that sounds crazy, but I have to tell you, like doing as much media work as I do, it's true. When Kim Jong Un stops doing tests, people literally kind of forget that the weapons exist. People start asking questions like, "Well, maybe 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 you know there aren't even any weapons there anymore," and it just kind of goes away. So I think that for serious policymakers, they'll always know. But they it gives them permission to just ignore it from a domestic political sense.
0: Does this not then also create the incentive for other countries to pursue nuclear weapon programs?
1: Yes, that's a sucky thing about the current situation.
0: We're vice; you can uh-huh. curse. What? We're vice; you can curse if you need. Oh to. yeah,
1: that fucking sucks. <laughs> but we're. I mean, but we're stuck with it, right? And the reason I say we're stuck with it is it, when Israel built nuclear weapons outside of the NPT, that created a certain incentive. When India and Pakistan did it, that created a certain incentive. When North Korea left the NPT, built a weapon and didn't get bombed, sanctions or no sanctions, it suggested this was, was a viable a viable route. Uh, I think Iran is probably going to go down this route, although you know I'm really hoping not, but I just haven't been that good of a boy for Christmas. So, you know, I think we... We have this problem. The positive thing I would say is this. Every case is a little bit different. And so the world doesn't work like a kind of clockwork mechanism where it's like you set the precedent and then everyone gets to avail themselves of it. Like the Israel precedent is pretty limited because that's fairly unique to that dynamic. I think that's the same of India and Pakistan. It's the same with North Korea. It'll be the same with Iran you know, like, I think the Saudis might make an effort to build a nuclear weapon at some point here. That's going to be partly about precedent, but it's also going to be a lot more about the regional dynamic and the nature of their relationship with the US. So like precedent is one thing, but I I don't think it's by any means the most important thing. And, you know, you set that small cost against the real risk of a nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula. And I, I just I'm willing to pay it but I don't pretend it doesn't exist because it does.
0: Then, I mean, you have written a lot and done a whole show about the JCPOA and Iran. It sounds like you think Iran is going to get nukes.
1: I mean, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. The rational thing to do in their position would be, yes, to pursue nuclear weapons as a hedge against regime change.
1: If you're the Iranians, your experience is you tried to build nuclear weapons in the early 2000s. Uh, the program was exposed and you came under enormous political pressure. You negotiated to try to get that pressure off. That pressure was unrelenting until you reached a pretty significant and intrusive deal under a Democratic president. And that immediately became an incredibly partisan issue, where as soon as there was a Republican president that deal was torn up and you lost all the benefits which by the way had not turned out to be as good as you thought and now you have another democratic president who's taking a much harder line because he's afraid of the political costs and you know that he's likely to be followed by a republican who will just tear the deal up again like that's a lot of aggravation nuclear weapons are not nearly as annoying as Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden and Donald Trump. You know, they don't talk back. They don't have politics. They don't have feelings. They don't screw you over. You you build them, you put them in a basement, and they're your steady, loyal friend. So my, my sense is, you know, I think there are camps in Iran. Like, I think it's a mistake to think of the Iranians as a coherent decision maker, right? There are definitely politics. But if you had to... Parachute yourself into a run right now and say, which side do I align myself with? Right? Who is going to be better off over the long term politically? Like, I think the people who negotiated the deal with us look like schmucks. You know, they look like idiots who got taken advantage of. And I think politically, you're much safer to be one of the hardliners saying, nah, let's do it because you'll never, you can never trust the American.
0: So it sounds like to me, I mean, all this stuff sounds very scary, but it also sounds like you're pretty convinced that we are not, in the immediate future, barreling towards a nuclear confrontation with Russia.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we are – we're pushing it, right? I mean, this is dangerous. Mostly deterrence has worked, which is good. You know, again – You see all these people in the United States complain that we are, quote, self-deterred by Russia's nuclear weapons, which I just I hate that phrase. That just means you're deterred like we are. Right. We are not willing to engage in direct military confrontation with the Russians because we are afraid it will cause a nuclear war. So that fear is real. And I don't want to discount that fear. That's why I'm, you know, at take a shot to steady the nerves uh, rather than drink the whole bottle. That fear is real, but it's working because we are not listening to these people who want to escalate. Similarly, Putin is not attacking NATO. You know, he's complaining that he's at war with NATO. He knows very well where all these supplies of incredibly lethal assistance are coming through. And yet he has chosen so far to restrict the area of operations to the Ukraine theater. And so what I think we're seeing is deterrence working like it's supposed to. It's just hard for people to accept that because it sucks. Like nobody likes living through a situation where you are threatened with mutual annihilation in order to make your decision-making better. Like that is unpleasant and difficult, but that's also why deterrence works because it's unpleasant and it's difficult and it forces you to do shit. You don't want to do, uh, but having said that, again, right, it only works if there is a chance and there is a chance that it's all going to go sideways.
0: So then it also sounds like you don't buy into – there's kind of this Twitter pundit idea that I see that
1: – I can stop you right there, Twitter pundit idea.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. No. Fair enough. But, no. the, but the idea that, that Putin is using the threat of nukes, which you were saying he kind of quite hasn't made – to seize territory. You don't see that that's kind of what's happening.
1: No, I don't. I mean, I think it enables it a little bit. You know, like, if Putin didn't have nuclear weapons, we would have a slightly different debate in the United States about whether to get directly involved. And that debate would still have huge aspects of deterrence in it, right? Because some people would say, We have to help the Ukrainians. If we don't stop him in Ukraine, we'll have to fight him in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And other people would say, well, that's going to escalate. That could turn into a a larger war. Uh, Like You would have the same debate, but nuclear weapons simplify, right? So Putin does get the benefit of nuclear weapons in the sense that it makes clear to us that there are risks of escalation. But I think if he didn't have nuclear weapons, he'd have done it anyway. And I honestly think we would still be trying to contain this conflict because, you know, I mean, World War II in Europe didn't have any nuclear weapons, and we really didn't want to have to do that either, right? I mean, I sometimes toy with the idea that it's not always nuclear weapons because what we're really afraid of is the threat of destruction. It's just that nuclear weapons symbolize that threat of destruction in a really profound and simple way. And it becomes very easy for policymakers to gesture at nuclear war as a stand-in for all the terrible things that would happen if we had another global war, even one that stayed conventional.
0: Right. I think people forget that in the run-up to World War II in America, there was a pretty strong like anti-war contingent. And people who had remembered the mechanized, horrifying warfare of World War I um, and didn't want to have America be any part of that again, right? Um, right. So, yeah. New- Sorry. What, well, the, I,
1: I mean, a classic example of this is Khrushchev's famous letter to Kennedy. Doesn't really talk about the horror of nuclear war. He talks about the horror of World War II, right? He appeals to Kennedy and he was like, you know, we were both in that thing and that, you know, we saw what that looked like. And so I think that for policymakers, they're, they're going to be reluctant to escalate things just generally. You know, policymakers are usually pretty cautious. I, whatever you want to say about Putin's bad decision-making leading up to this, he tried to do it on the cheap, right? He tried to limit the costs he had to pay. And I just think nuclear weapons simplify that. And they give people a, a ready-made excuse. Uh, but yeah, the people who were against U.S. involvement in World War One and World War Two would be against U.S. involvement in World War Three, with or without nuclear weapons. It's just they have a better argument now.
0: So I know uh, coming to the end of this conversation, we've got a couple of good ones from the audience. I wanted I want to get in here. Um, what do you wish first? Uh, I guess, what do you wish everyone knew, every layperson knew about nuclear weapons? What do you think we need to understand?
1: No such thing as mutual assured destruction.
0: What does that mean?
1: So that phrase that everybody in the popular press bandy, or popular, not press, everybody bandies that around, uh, that was never U.S. policy. Uh, what happened was at one point, the Kennedy administration briefly tried an idea called assured destruction, which was just like, The idea that at some point we had enough nuclear weapons and that more wouldn't make a difference uh, because you would you would have destroyed everything in the Soviet Union multiple times over. And then so what? Uh, The people who were like, no, you can never have too many nuclear weapons, hated that. And they caricatured that as mutual assured destruction, saying you have given up on the idea of victory and you're accepting that we would both be mutually annihilated whereas they wanted to win that nuclear war against the Soviets. Uh, and they also called it uh, assured vulnerability. And so that term, mutual assured destruction, is a calumny lobbed against people who felt like you couldn't win a nuclear war. It was never really a U.S. policy, and it wasn't something people used in order to advocate that idea. Uh, and so it's, I just think it's really important to know that for most people who are ever who have ever been involved in making nuclear weapons policy they have always had some notion and you know they have differences and they'll they'll fight and say well i'm not one of those people i'm one of these people but they've always had some idea of using nuclear weapons to prevail or achieve victory or limit damage that the other side can do you know they the idea that you have this mutual balance, um, and that that's just the normal condition of things—that's not how governments plan, and it's not how they structure their forces. And so, I think we imagine that policymakers are sitting on top of much more deterrent-focused arsenals than they really are. A lot of these things, a lot of these things, are not for simple retaliation
0: well and especially when you look outside of the united states and russia right you yeah. look at the nuclear forces of all the other countries that have them it is a much different arsenal and a much different story
1: yeah and i mean they're all different and some of them are you know like the chinese used to be very deterrence oriented uh so much so they wouldn't even use that word um uh, yeah now they're changing uh so, you know, you could go through, but my general sense is this, is that normal, healthy, well-adjusted people have the false idea that people in charge are normal, healthy, and well-adjusted too. And so, like, it leads them down the wrong path because they look at all this and they say, ah, oh, this is just madness. You know, they they would never do that, right? And that, that maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm too cynical, but all, we spend billions of dollars to procure, build, and plan to use nuclear weapons in ways that are much more coercive and much more uh, for bargaining um, than, than the phrase mutual assured destruction would suggest. And indeed, when we talked about conveying to the Chinese, some of us said you know you really should tell the chinese you don't seek to get rid of their deterrent right that you accept that you have mad with the chinese the bush administration hated that and what they said was we never accepted that with the russians why would we accept that with the chinese so
0: you know mad it's not really a thing that's uh, i kind of want to tease all of that out now but i don't have time um do you tell me on again yeah we can talk we can just talk about the myth of mad uh what do you wish what do you wish media outlets were asking you and other nuclear experts?
1: You know, I wish that we just got asked more factual questions. I'm always asked for my opinion, and like I love my opinion as much as everybody, but at the end of the day, so much of the narrative I see in the press is just wrong, and you know it's it's always a problem where if some news organization reports that Putin made a nuclear threat. Every editor wants their reporters to report on the nuclear threat Putin made. And it's hard, I think, for reporters to say, well, I, you know, I talked to these three experts and two said it wasn't really a threat at all. Uh, And, you know, instead, they're usually like, I got to make that editor happy. And I'll quote the one person who says it was a threat. And then maybe five, six paragraphs down, I'll quote one of the people who says it wasn't. But it. It's so much about our opinions that I think there's an enormous amount of just technical and factual information that really needs to be in stories much more than reporters are allowed to put in. And for the record, like, I think reporters want to do that. I think this is really more of an editor thing than it is a, a, like, lazy reporter thing. I'm
0: staring directly at the camera for no reason whatsoever. Um... (laughs) Uh, editors are people too. Editors are people too. They're lovely. Uh, they're, you know, that's how we get Jeffrey Lewis on right now to talk about nuclear war, uh, live before a studio audience, so to speak. Um, on a personal level, what is it like to be a nuke expert right now? Sorry. Another opinion question. Um, no, no,
1: well, that's, that's an opinion where my opinion is data, right? Because I'm the first person responder. It's weird. Uh, You know, as an expert, you always feel two conflicting impulses. One is you want people to care about what you do. And so it's nice when you're at a cocktail party and you tell people what you do. Normally their drink is suddenly empty and they walk away to get another one and I never see them again. So like, I'm psyched that now people care about what I do, uh, But it's also a little bizarre because people come to this conversation with really strongly held opinions of their own. And it kind of very quickly like goes from like polite chit chat. Like, so what did you do at work? Oh, I'm really interested in that to, well, let me tell you what I think we should do about Vladimir Putin and his nuclear weapons. And, you know, sometimes those are insightful, but often it's like I, I, you know, like I think about this stuff all day and I. I don't, I'm not getting paid to teach this class, you know, like we're at a party. Maybe we could talk about the
0: beach or something. Uh, Fallout video games, good or bad?
1: I mean, I think that they're just video games and you should enjoy them if you like them. I, you know, I can nitpick stuff to death, but like, I mean, is is Fallout where you go to get accurate information about nuclear weapons effects, or is it where you go to have a good time and not worry about nuclear weapons effects in a realistic way? Like, like I I think it's probably good, you know? Uh,
0: know. There's a good one from Not Mickey that kind of ties into... I think you and I have been having a conversation off and on the last couple years that we've known each other about... There's a lot of weird technical information in this field, right? There's a lot of... There's a lot of strange facts and a lot of like things you have to understand as first order information before you even really get to talking about some of the stuff we've been talking about today. Um, Not Mickey yeah. says it feels like the government talking about nuclear weapons is so obfuscated that lay people can't interpret statements without relying on the media. Um, so it's a little disturbing to hear that experts can be decided so divided. Even setting aside press issues, how do you think we do a better job of covering this stuff?
1: So one thing is my community is super gatekeepy and, you know, like I, when I put on a suit and tie, I can play that game. You know, you never say use nuclear weapons. You say employ them because we use nuclear weapons every day. I mean, like that kind of stuff, like your language has to be really highly stylized um, or people use that for gatekeeping. And so that is why it feels like such obfuscation. Um, and then you know you layer on to it the fact that there's a pretty well established at this point dichotomy of viewpoints uh, and i you know i'm not going to slander the people on the other side of it for me, but uh, a lot of the language that experts use is highly adapted to their particular ideological viewpoint and it's designed to um, obscure debate and hide things more so than it is to elucidate things. So I think that for, if you're asking like how reporters do a better job of covering this, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. You need a kind of special person, right? You need a person who knows the language games inside and out. And so they know what they're being told But then they also have to have the courage and enough support from editors to then write in a really lucid way, not like an expert, knowing that the experts will mock them for the uh, crude and inelegant and factually inaccurate way they write. Uh, Because, you know, like the whole field is literally designed so that if you talk about it in a realistic and vibrant way, um, you know, you're locked away. You're locked out. So I think as a reporter, you just gotta, you gotta know the game and have enough uh, freedom to
0: cheat. I do enjoy cheating. Mr. Lewis, I know you need to go. Thank you so much for coming onto Cyber and walking us through this. Uh, If someone... Is looking to get started learning about all this stuff, where's a good place to, like, get started? Where's the basic primer, or is there one?
1: I think the basic primer is still, it's 40 years old, it's Wizards of Armageddon by Fred Kaplan. We've been having the same lame debates for decades, so the first 30 years are the best
0: excellent mr. Lewis thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this uh, if you're watching this live and you missed the beginning of it you can pick it up as a podcast here uh, as soon as I get done eating lunch I will get it out Be very quick um, if you are listening to the podcast we recorded this live and you can watch them too. even get questions into the uh, people that we talk with we stream live at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV and youtube.com forward slash motherboard follow us in either of those places and you will be notified when we go live Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back again next week with a with a story of, of weird and scary things that are going on in our world and probably the internet. Thank you all so much. Traffic jams,
1: tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.